you know, a very telling moment for me was when I got married for my wedding. Um, you know, I had to decide, right? Like there were people who I'd worked with for a really, and I had a very small wedding by design. I had always wanted a small wedding, um, but I had to, that was the first, first time in my career. And I got married, you know, in my mid thirties. And it was the first time in my career that I was going to blend my personal life and my professional life, because I was going to cherry pick a couple of people to join this small intimate wedding that I was having and you know there was a full-on Cuban salsa band there oh, were that. you know all the toasts were in Spanish um, you know all these like Latino traditions they were cigars you know rolling around I mean it was the full-on you know experience and I thought well this is it right these guys are gonna see this um, for the first time, but that was a very small group. So to see this happen again, you know, when I became the publisher of People in Espanol, people asked me those questions. It was, a, it was an awakening to me that, you know, either maybe there were things I was modulating and it was unconscious, um, or I was just invisible because people liked to see, you know, what they thought was the non-Hispanic Caucasian Monique. Mi gente, dímelo. What up, what up? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Tu Eres podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know it's your boy, Pavel, bringing you another special episode with another very special guest. Now, the clip you just heard in the intro is with this week's guest, Monique Manso. Currently, Monique serves as the publisher of People en Español, the largest selling Hispanic magazine in the United States, reaching an audience of 7 million people each month. She's in charge of overseeing all advertising and marketing operations for the magazine and its website, peopleenespanol.com, as well as the brand's live event platform, which includes Los 50 Más Bellos, Los 25 Mujeres Más Influyentes, and the annual Festival People in Espanol. For Monique's full bio, please be sure to check out the show notes of this week's episode. Now that you know a little bit more about Monique, let's get into the episode. So I'm so excited to chat with you today. Um, let's just get started where we always get started, which is authenticity. It's such a buzzword. When you hear the word or, where people, or whenever people tell you to be your most authentic self, what, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? You know, um, I, I used to think it was about bringing your whole self um, to everything that you do, but most recently I've started to change a little bit about my thinking um, around authenticity to be about removing shame, right? I think that when we hear about people not being their authentic self, it is in part around feeling that others aren't going to accept them and it is in part around shame whether it's the shame of the differences in their upbringing their food their language their accents their lack of you know the similar career paths or similar education as others around them so i i think i've sort of changed my mind a little bit to incorporate not just bringing your whole self but bringing your whole self and removing some of those elements of shame that may have prevented you in the past from bringing your whole self that is such a powerful word. Like, tell me a little bit about some of the shame that you experienced, maybe at an early age. You know, I, I have had both the blessing and the curse of being in roles where I could really be my authentic self and be surrounded by other Latinos and then roles where I haven't. But very early on in my career, I remember... Um, you know, first starting to look for a job. 
and uh, I had worked in retail while I was in high school and college, right, to pay the bills. And interestingly enough, when I worked in retail as a young adolescent, it was an asset that I spoke English, that I was bilingual. So I was the young girl in a very Hispanic DMA um, in New Jersey where everybody was, you know, either Latino, Italian-American, or Irish-American. And if you were Latino, you were most likely Cuban or Puerto Rican. And I was um, in a retail environment where um, people of a certain age who didn't speak English would come to me and yo era la niña, you know, la niña in the store that spoke both languages and they would come in and they would say, oye, tú que habla inglés, can you read my electric bill? Can you read this like, you know, collections notice? Can you read this letter from my kid's school, you know, that I don't really understand? Um, and it wasn't, and because I grew up in such a diverse community and surrounded by so many Latinos, I didn't really understand what it was to be a minority at a young age. I knew what prejudice was, right, and uh, bias, and, and I had certainly experienced it, and I saw family members experience it, and my parents, and, you know, all of those things. But in my day-to-day, -day, I was so surrounded by Latinos. And it wasn't until um, I really went out into corporate America, and I thought, oh, I'm going to take this retail experience, and, you know, maybe there's a corporate path for me in retail. And one of the first interviews I went on was to a company um, uh, that you know was very proud of what it was doing for children, right? So it was a children's company, that it, and it was a retailer. And I remember taking a train, right? I didn't have car, um, you know. There was certainly not a budget for Uber, and I remember taking a train, real, you know, with a lot of switching, you know, up into the country, if you will, out of this urban community where I grew up, and sitting at the interview, and there I was, my authentic Latina, you know, twenty-something self and you know with my long nails bright nails and my bright red lipstick <laughs> and you know all of it right I brought all of it and I remember sitting across from this person who was clearly impressed during the interview with everything I had to say and how I could handle the job and then they went into what was at the time a set of rules for that company about the dress code and they made it a point to say you know short nails professional attire, you know, at this point in my life, you know, pantsuits weren't something that I wore or suits, as a matter of fact, weren't something that I wore. And, you know, Pavel, when you talk about shame, I remember that first moment of thinking, oh gosh, you know, I didn't come prepared for this. This is, I am not what they expected. I am not what they want. And I remember thinking, I didn't have anybody to turn to, to ask for this advice, right? My parents, you know, were all about like hard work, keep working hard, the harder you work, the more, you know, the more people will notice and the rest won't matter. Um, so fast forward, I, um, I, I realized that job wasn't for me, nor was I being offered that job. And I um, started an internship and I started an internship not really understanding what an internship was. So somebody came to university to speak to the marketing department and she was a woman who had her own ad agency and she was very powerful. And I remember thinking, wow, and there she was in her pantsuit, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, gray pantsuit, white button down shirt, and she was just amazing. And she said at the end of her talking points, she said, if anybody wants a job in advertising, come see me. 
And I very naively ran to the front of the room after um, and said, you know, I'm ready for a job and I want this. And I spoke to her and she said, okay, well, there's somebody I'm going to send you to see who's a colleague of mine at a different agency. And she runs the um, internship program there. And so I got ready, I went to, to the internship program and it wasn't, I didn't really understand what I was applying for because I didn't really understand that I wouldn't be paid. Or at the time it was $75 a week, right? So, um, so I went into this not really knowing what I was doing and of course I had to keep my other two jobs in retail, right? So, um, you know, I kept being la niña who spoke English, you know, in my retail experience in Union City, New Jersey. Um, and then, you know, was one of those annoying cosmetics girls at Bloomingdale's as well, you know, offering you your free makeover as you walked by. And I earned these $75 a week and I did the only thing I knew how, which was to outwork everybody there, right? And I remember even going into at some point my manager's office and saying, hey, you know, I don't think I'm being given enough work. The team is not giving me enough work, which made me no friends with the team, but they taught me very quickly that um, I shouldn't be saying that I didn't have enough work um, to our manager. Uh, and I ended up staying on board at that agency. Literally, I was standing at the printer one day and the gentleman I worked for, you know, said, hey, Manzo, you know, uh, when's graduation? And, and, you know, I said Sunday and he said, well, come in on Monday. And I realized then that we were two Latinas and one black guy in a very, very large global ad agency. And again, that was really the first time that I felt in an environment that I was going to every day, right? Because I'd never felt that. I grew up in an urban community. I went to diverse schools. Um, that was the first time I realized, oh gosh, you know, we're different and there's very few of us. And the shame, I think, um, you know, and shame is a powerful word, um, but it was in seeing the differences in people's upbringing, right? And people would talk talk about that. Go ahead. I was I, no, I was going to say like, yeah. How did you realize some of those differences? Like, did it just come up in conversations? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, media, right? It's a very social environment. There, you know, and that those were the, you know, those were the days of champagne wishes and caviar dreams, right? Where there was a party every night and a lunch every day, and you know, people were flying you off, you know, all the stuff that doesn't happen anymore. And so there was a lot of time for social conversation uh, amongst colleagues, between clients, um, and people would talk about their upbringing and their background and. And, you know, you would think that this is something I would have experienced more in school before that, but I didn't. And I really realized like, oh gosh, you know, my people aren't those people who like, you know, belong to the yacht club and, you know, had a, had like a, a solid networking plan, you know, their parents put together for them and, you know, came from a long line of the same fraternity brothers or sorority sisters. And, um, and so that's where I began to really, um, see the differences, um, in, in a big way. And, um, you know, I remember um, thinking, gosh, you know, 
I've got to keep my personal life really, really separate from my professional life. That's what I was taught. You know, I was taught that by my parents. It's like work is work and your personal life is your personal life and never the two shall meet. And this, yeah, this this uh, reinforced it for me. It's so funny when you said that, because I remember um, when I entered advertising and technology, especially in sales, I was telling my mom, I was like, oh, yeah. Uh, she's like, oh, what are you doing after work? Like, let's meet up or something. I was like, oh, no, my, I have to go to this happy hour. And she was like, mijo, no. Tu vas a beber con, 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 con la gente de, de, de sí, la compañía. No yeah, she was like, oh, my God, don't get, don't get drunk. Don't drink this. And, like, till this day, she doesn't think I have a real job. She's like, what do you yeah. mean you send emails and you, like, take people out for dinner? I was like, no, no, no. It's, like, <laughs> relationship yeah. building. But, but, yeah, there's, like, a very strict divide that I think we're taught about. But it's... It's interesting too, right? Because I'd love to hear more about um, like one part that changed specifically was you saying I need to keep things separate. But even in that earlier comment when in, in the dress code where they told you like how to present yourself, I'm wondering like what else changed for you in some of those early years about like who you started presenting? Well, it's interesting because in that same job, right, that I was hired into from the internship, I was, um, I, I started to work for a woman who is an amazing friend and mentor to today, right? And this is my earliest job in, in advertising. And she really took me under her wing. Um, and she is not Hispanic, right? Not a woman of color. And said something to me um, that stayed with me for a very long time. And she said, you know, there, this is a lot of fun this job there's a lot of great parties there's a lot of um, dining out etc and sometimes you know the younger people coming into our business sort of get lost in that and blur the lines between work and personal and if you really want to be successful um, you need to do things differently and her message was think about the people you choose, Monique. She was like, you choose which ones you admire, whose path you think, you know, could could resemble your future, and try to look at what they've done in their career. Well, inevitably, all those people were not people of color, right? So I didn't, I, I wasn't conscious that I was modulating anything at all in my life because for me it had nothing to do with culture at that moment it only had to do with success and so I never looked at it through the filter or the lens of culture I only looked at it through the filter of success and like what do I need to do to be successful and so I looked at the things that made them successful and that was one aspect and then the other aspect was you know that back to that same fallback which is nobody can outwork me nobody can outwork me. And as long as nobody can outwork me, right? And we hear this, right? You've heard, you know, I've read this from folks like Sonia Sotomayor. I've heard this from, you know, other really successful Latinas who have said that because they were always feeling like they were being doubted, that they had the right skill set, the right pedigree, the right education. They felt they had to overcompensate for that with working harder. Um, and I clearly, you know, have been guilty of that and have done that. And so I worked harder, so much so that I had identified 
that you know there was this group within the organization that was starting to do international um, pan-regional media right and and they were winning some some business and pitching new business um, and so I you know very quietly introduced myself to that person and and then you know the light bulb went off for me with this superpower right I'm bilingual um, I understand Latino culture and they were walking working across Europe Asia and Latin America and I said I can help you and it wasn't my job so I did that job from like you know 7 p.m. to midnight right because I had to fulfill my regular job because I wanted to be successful and yet I, I realized that maybe this superpower of mine was something that I could use in this other role and that paid off right so when they had an opportunity to bring in an extra set of hands they said you know I want that Latina kid who sits in her cubicle um, I think my cube was like 6b because it was next to the bathroom so it was like this makeshift it wasn't even like like a real cube <laughs> and um and i sat in my little 6b you know like you know covering the fax machine so nobody would use it because i was doing all these like international faxes at the time and worked on latin america and 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 that grew into a real job that grew into her asking me again to move out of the current role that i was in to move into that role and then I was back to what I knew. I was back to the Monique, to La Nina, you know, in that retail store, helping the people who didn't speak uh, English, but in a, in a different way, like all those folks from Latin America, when I would pick up the phone and call them and talk to them or go visit, because I had this amazing opportunity to travel throughout Latin America, suddenly I was with my people, you know, and um, it was incredibly rewarding. And that lasted, you know, for quite some time, but then I went back, right? So it's been this like, this um, constant modulation, if you will, until today, where I am today, obviously, is the publisher of People in Espanol. Is, is that when you started to realize, like, I'm wondering about that transition from shame to understanding that who you are is a superpower. Is that when it sort of switched for you and seeing like you being successful and embracing that, that side of you as a superpower and as a skill? Is that when it flipped away from shame for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's when it became a superpower for me, um, you know, and I, I was always, you know, I felt self-confident even when I was working initially in general market, but I knew that there, there, I knew that um, there was a difference between, you know, this little group, of, you know, the, the black guy and the two Latinas um, <laughs> and the rest of them. And um and, and, you know, I've dealt with microaggressions from very early on from the onset. Um, I've dealt with some that aren't so micro. And, um, and so it, it was, it definitely was one of, it was one of the best times of my life, one of the best times of my career to, you know, it was at just at that age where I needed that boost to really come out um, on my own. And um, the, the same, interestingly enough, the mentor who said to me, you know, follow, follow those people, like look to those people who you want to be. She and I were moved into this international role together. And so, you know, she, um, 
you know, her intention was never to have me modulate my behavior, um, but rather to be successful. And, um, and so she went on this journey with me in Latin America. We visited all these countries together and it was so rewarding because I can honestly say that um, she took pride in my success. Like there was, you know, there was this sisterhood there of feeding each other's um, success. And I, and, you know, sadly, um, you know, I've had really great managers. I've had not so great managers. Um, I've, I've only had maybe two managers ever of color um, in my career, which says a lot. Um, but I will tell you that most of the help that I have gotten and most of the mentorship and um, people taking me sort of under their wing has come from men um, with very few exceptions, this being one of the you know most impactful in my life. Um, so that really was, that was a, a defining moment for me, um, you know, in my career. Yeah, no, I've, I've actually heard that as a, as a consistent theme for a few people um, in finding their superpower and understanding that things that they were shameful about was actually their superpower, bringing such a different perspective and, and, and that being bringing value to whatever organization that they're part of. Um, I think it's so interesting, too, whenever I have people uh, that have had uh, careers in sales have this conversation as well, because, you know, there's and I'm, I'm in sales as well. I, I know that, you know, you in your previous life. Um, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, they think about the nine to five, right? But in sales, you also have to worry about like, let's say the five to nine, like you not only have to worry about who you are with your coworkers, but also like with people that, um, you know, may resemble your coworkers and may not look like us, right? So did you also struggle with authenticity when, when um, working with clients externally as well? Um, you know, again, I, I, I don't, I can't say that I ever remember purposely modulating my behavior in those sort of social environments but um you know there's something there's something that i'm very aware of today and it's taken me a long time to realize that right um my name is monique right doesn't sound very latina my last name is manzo which is really manso Okay, Manso, not yeah. Manzo, it's Manso. Um, but at a very early age, um, people who couldn't pronounce it changed our name to Manzo for us, right? Um, but it is culturally ambiguous, right? People aren't sure. Um, I'm very light-skinned Latina. Um, I don't have an accent. And so I think, uh, you know, when people talk about white privilege, um, I've definitely experienced what white privilege is the same way that I've experienced microaggressions and bias and everything else, right? Depending on the, the circumstance and the environment that I'm in. And so um, when I took this job at People in Espanol, when I was offered this job and I took this job and um, we can come back to that because I did go kicking and screaming thinking, oh my gosh, now I'm going to be pegged, you know, this Latina only, you know, only relevant to Latino jobs, you know, because I'd seen this happen in my career to other people. And um, I sort of went kicking and screaming, but I'll never forget about it. People came to my office and would say, oh my God, congratulations. And they would say, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna take up Spanish? And I couldn't believe the questions that I got because I thought, are they, have I been that um, invisible? to them, right? Like I felt invisible because I have never 
ever not spoken in Spanish when I pick up the phone and it's my husband, my kids, my, you know, nanny. Um, I have never not spoken to a waiter in Spanish at a restaurant when I can tell the waiter is struggling, right, to figure out the order or whatever it is. I have never not spoken my language in the, in a bar, in the right environment, right? And so to your point about, you know, that the, you know, I don't want to lose sight of your question after, after the nine to five, um, I have never, you know, felt that I was modulating, but I did feel invisible all of a sudden because I thought, my gosh, who, who have you thought I've been? Who have I been working with all this time? You know, if you didn't realize that, right. And, um, you know, a very telling moment for me was when I got married for my wedding, um, you know, I had to decide, right? Like there were people who I'd worked with for a really, and I had a very small wedding by design. I had always wanted a small wedding, um, but I had to, that was the first, first time in my career. And I got married, you know, in my mid thirties. And it was the first time in my career that I was going to blend my personal life and my professional life, because I was going to cherry pick a couple of people to join this small, intimate wedding that I was having. And, you know, there was a full on Cuban salsa band. There oh, were, that. you know, all the toasts were in Spanish. Um, you know, all these like Latino traditions, they were cigars, you know, rolling around. I mean, it was the full on, you know, experience. And I thought, well, this is it, right? These guys are going to see this. Um, for the first time, but that was a very small group. So to see this happen again, you know, when I became the publisher of People in Espanol, people asked me those questions. It was, a, it was an awakening to me that, you know, either maybe there were things I was modulating and it was unconscious, um, or I was just invisible because people liked to see, you know, what they thought was the non-Hispanic Caucasian Monique. That's so fascinating and such an interesting dynamic as well i mean thinking about a wedding i mean i'm i'm not married but i can only i can only imagine the anxiety and the the pressure and just like this this roller coaster of emotions that you're already feeling for a wedding and to add into that this like blending of two worlds if you will right like do you remember what that felt like? Like, were you even thinking about that? Like, oh my God, what are they going to think or any of those sort of things? Or were you just so consumed by the wedding totally, itself? Totally. I was totally thinking about it. Really? Um, in fact, um, you know, my wedding, we had kids there um, mm. because we're Latinos, right? And so <laughs> like this notion of like an invite that says you can't bring your kids, um, especially to my husband who was born and raised in Cuba, you know, and came as an adult, came to this country in his thirties. Um, you know, he was like, what? people like exclude kids like he couldn't you know he couldn't even grasp that and I remember the you know the the folks that I worked with when I said oh you can bring your children um you know your two daughters or your son or whatever it was they they couldn't even fathom it um and uh it, it was it was just it was a it was a very interesting moment um so yes I was I definitely was thinking about that yeah Oof, I could only imagine it's so funny because your husband's probably like oh my god like babe, don't be nervous, blah, blah, we're going to do fine. I'm like, I'm not worried about you. Worried about my coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's so funny. I'm so curious too, because um, like, it's interesting, you know, talking to, to someone um, uh, on your career status and understanding, you know, all the things that you've accomplished. I've always wondered, like, is it easier to, to be yourself the, 
the um, more advanced that you get in your career? Or do you feel more pressure to like uphold a certain image? I think it's easier. And I think that it becomes easier if you assume it as a responsibility. Um, and that is something that I have assumed as a responsibility. Um, you know, I talk about, you know, I've, I've had these moments um, of microaggressions, et cetera. And first I have a real clear, and, and this could be controversial for you or for others, but I have a real clear understanding in my mind that when these things happen, you have to try and identify ignorance um, versus malicious intent, you know, um, and sometimes those things mix a little bit, um, but I try to be really cognizant and forgiving of those things that I think are true ignorance, like real just, you know, didn't know, um, and you can tell, you know, you can tell, I think, uh, you know, where those are, but um, as I've gotten further in my career, I've assumed more and more this responsibility. And a lot of it has come in my time as publisher at People in Espanol, where, you know, we invest a lot of time, energy, and resources in actually doing research. And, um, you know, we've done research, we've done an entire study on what Latinas feel in the workplace. And to hear those stories of those respondents um, has been, you know, it wasn't a rude awakening because I knew they existed. It was just so painful to understand the depth, you know, how deep these things go and how many there are even today when, you know, when one would hope that we've come much further than we have. Um, and so very early on, um, both when I worked with all those Latin American offices and sort of felt like I had to be their champion with my home office for them to be properly understood and that, you know, it didn't matter that they had the accent. They, they, they didn't listen with an accent. They were you know, they were equally prepared and skilled and intelligent to, you know, now at, at um, you know, in my career where I've seen all of this social justice, you know, change, um, what the pandemic has done, what I already knew about what Latinas were facing in the workplace all sort of converge. It has become easier because um, I feel a real responsibility and where I may have stayed quiet in the past or handled it, uh, you know, um, differently, I'm, I might, you know, I, I will address it now, you know, I've had, as you can imagine, you know, I've had people come to me and, and you know, in the world of microaggressions that w the words of um, when someone's not polished enough, you know, is always a code, uh, you know, one of those, you know, microaggressions that, that are really difficult to take. But, you know, I've had someone, you know, come to me and say, oh, I think that person on your team is not polished enough. And, you know, I've, you know, rather than step back and say, well, let me, you know, I'll, I'll go find out what's going on. I'll work with them. I've said, well, give me an example. Like, what does polished mean to you, right? Like, what is it that they did that, made you think they weren't polished because I work with them every day and they are polite and smart and you know and so I really I really feel that responsibility um I have always felt it um but I feel that in it, with you know as my career has changed and as I've I've been fortunate enough to experience growth I can help affect more change I love that um no I love this I love a lot of the work that you're doing um with people in Espanol as well um, I'm wondering like about that research because I'm sure you've read the research you said like it was emotional even just reading it right um, on some level it must also 
you must also feel seen to understand like, wow, I wasn't alone in this. In some ways, it, it's kind of validating as, as well as sad, right? Like, were there any examples that you read through where you was like, wow, like that happened to me too. Like, I guess I wasn't alone in that struggle. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely, you know, I'll tell you, um, I traveled the country giving that research. And, um, you know, you've been in sales. So you know that one of the superpowers of salespeople is you walk into a room and you read the room. It's like, know your audience, right? It's like a performer. So you're like, okay, what do I have here? And it's always interesting me when I walk into a room, I look around the room and I'll say, okay, we've got, you know, a bunch of white men. um, And I'm about to deliver some research which feels uncomfortable. Um, it feels uncomfortable when people hear, you know, me present these women's stories and it's their stories that, you know, where they were very candid about how they feel they have to work twice as hard as they feel like, um, you know, they have to change uh, and modulate, you know, their dress, their hair, their style, um, where they feel, you know, where they talk about having comments made about being aggressive or hot or spicy, you know, you must be hot and spicy because you're Mexican. I mean, these are quotes, direct quotes um, that come um, from the research. And then in the same room, you know, I will, there'll be like, usually no more than one to three Latinos. (laughs) And um, you'll see them sitting together and they'll nod at me throughout the presentation. I'll see like the little thumbs up comes up from the table. Um, I'll see smiles come across their face. I'll see them stare at their, um, you know, counterparts in the room to say, gosh, you know, I can't believe it's taken this for, you know, people to understand what I may have um, been living. And so that is incredibly painful at the same time, very rewarding. Um, You know, many of them run up to me and my team afterwards to say, I feel seen, you saw me, I experienced this. And a lot of it has to do with them feeling like they're living multiple lives, right? So they've got their one persona at work where they're maybe, they are too Latina. They've got one persona uh, at home where they're not Latina enough if, you know, their work has got them sort of messing up on what the cultural norms at home are as Mm -hmm. a mom and a wife and a caretaker of an extended family. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they they talk to me about that. And, um, you know, the appearance thing, was really that was an eye opener for me and and you know going back to your question about my own experience right and having gone on that retail um interview where like my nails were too long they were definitely too bright they were too shiny the lips were too red like all of it um a lot of these women um talked to me you know about having hearing what's in the research about their hair, right? Like their hair being curly or their, you know, not wanting to wear a pantsuit and feeling like that was the dress code if they worked in a um, financial institution and the pain in that. And then I've talked to colleagues of mine, clients of mine who are C-suite women, like they're some of the most successful women I've ever met. And they've said, oh yeah, I still do this, or I still won't do that, right? And so that's when I realized like there is still a lot of work, um, there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, yeah. you know, in corporate America around uh, inclusivity. Um, yeah, I love the, again, I love the work that you're doing with, with people in Espanol. I know that the research is one aspect of, of the great work that you're, that you're doing and publishing and helping uplift, uplift the community. One other project that I definitely want to highlight is People Chica, because I think the, 
the representation that you're creating with that is 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 beautiful. So if, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I you know there was this and and you know this very well, Pavel, because you've been in this industry for some time now. Um, for I'd say at least ten years, there's been this notion for some reason that Latinos are going to stop speaking Spanish <laughs> and teaching their kids to speak Spanish. Um, I'm not really sure where that comes from, but someone has decided somewhere along the way that this word acculturation equals um, not speaking or understanding or reading Spanish. Um, and so at People in Espanol, um, we started very early on actually testing, right, and researching and actually speaking to our user base online um, and our readers to ask the question about language and our youngest audience members um, and readers said to us you know I don't want you to change anything because I'm still that girl that goes home you know on the weekend and I sit with my mom and I have congri and platano and you know my yuga frita and we watch telenovelas together and that, that's who I am in my core. But if you wanted to give me additional content um, that appeals to, you know, this, you know, cross-cultural part of my life, then um, I would take that. And so we started to test all of that. And um, that's how Chica was born. It has done remarkably well for us. You know, I, I call it the younger, edgier sister of um, people in Espanol. Um, we're doing more and more with it. You know, we have uh, in October, you'll see our first ever flip issue. So one side of the magazine will actually be people in Espanol and the other side will be Chica. And I think you'll see us do more really exciting things with that in the future. But that is another way that I fulfill my responsibility with, uh, obviously, through the editors, because they, they do all the real work of um, continuing to empower those young Latinas who feel like they live in these two worlds, right? They're, they feel equally American as they do Latina. Um, and it doesn't matter whether they speak Spanish properly uh, or at all. They feel it. They tell us they feel it. And when they self-define, they self-define as a Latina or they self-define as a Salvadoreña or a Mexicana. And, um, and it has nothing to do with language. And so that work that we're doing with Chica, both in book and online and through social, you know, is really important. Um, that's, that's just another step in, you know, the authenticity journey uh, for our audience. And, it, and it's crazy, too, because it doesn't even just happen to, to Latinos and Latinas. Well, there, there's two points that I want to make, because um, I think what's I think one of the problems with like DNI and like a lot of this research and is that people see it as like a social good pr project, but like people don't, don't understand, like, no, it's impacting your business, right? Like totally. if we're, if, if I'm wasting time, cause like I used to literally spend time during the weekdays during the weekends to study white popular American culture. Like instead of watching a show that I wanted to watch or listen to a bad bunny album, I would listen to Bruce Springsteen. I would watch reruns of Riverdale just to be able to go into work mm -hmm. and say, we you know when they talk about something, I can join into the conversation so that I can feel accepted, right? Like imagine I was actually spending that time on the work that they wanted me to do. Like us, like, we're already being so productive with only half the time. <laughs> like imagine if we actually allocated a lot more of the time to, to do some of these productive things. And I think what's interesting too is, um, you know, in some of the research that I've done, like, what I've noticed is that to your point, like there's C-suite people that are still hiding who they are. Um, I'm sure you know Mark Pritchard, right? Totally. 
Yeah, he mm -hmm. talks about that. He gave a very powerful speech at the A&A Multicultural. I know. He, he's one of the most powerful businessmen in the world. And, yeah. it, and he was still hiding the fact that he was Mexican. It's crazy. Yeah. And there's my favorite example outside of our community is, um, oh, I'm going to forget his name now. Uh, I forget his name, but he's the, he's the CEO of Goldman Sachs. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. I can't remember the name either, but I, I can't remember his name. About. He's yeah, he's talked about it in interviews and yeah. Yeah. Well, he was he was um he was he was actually a DJ like on the weekends, and the New York mm -hmm. Times outed him one year and said like, "Look at this guy, like hats backwards, spinning EDM music." And the board of directors at Goldman Sachs was like, "You can't do this." And he was like, "What? What do you, What do you mean?" I was like, "I'm not even taking money off of this. I'm donating it." But it's just around this example around like what professionalism is supposed to look like or what an executive is supposed to look like or what if someone on the board of directors is supposed to look like. It's almost as if like our weekend activities or our passions outside of work is supposed to somehow impact our skill or competence to do the job, which is, yeah. shouldn't be the case, right? So, well, yeah, and let's not forget that we're in media, right? And yeah. um, there is a browning of America. And so when you talk about it not just being about, you know, social, um, you know, the nice thing to do, it is impacting business. Like if you're not hiring diverse people, then you don't know how to talk to the fastest growing, you know, segment of the population. And that's the other thing that, you know, I have taken seriously uh, my entire career. So, you know, I, I grew into a management role very, very early in my career. I was very um, fortunate, you know, that my capabilities were recognized. And so I ran media teams at a very early age. I ran departments on the media side at a very early age. And I can tell you, I have always had incredibly diverse staffs always um and um and that's you know when i was running general market organizations right so that was not not you know not on the latin american side and not on people in espanol where of course you would expect it to be very diverse um but even even at people in espanol i'm so diverse that i've got you know I've got, I mean, one of my top staff, you know, members, sellers is not Latina, you know, or Latino, and they are an incredible producer, but, you know, they are a student of our culture. They're, you know, they, they, they enjoy it. They live and breathe it. They've been doing this for 17 years, um, but I find it, you know, my own personal responsibility to make sure that, you know, when I have been in those general market positions that we're, that I am constantly pushing, you know, that we see, and, and I take it very seriously you know in my organization now and you know being the one that's like I don't have any open jobs potentially but I'm always bringing forward talent that I think you know because I'm tired of hearing the talent doesn't exist um, you know one thing is talent that has the language skills if you need in language Spanish skills and that's a very you know different different thing and that that does exist right there there are jobs that require Spanish um, but there are plenty of jobs that don't require Spanish and that having that diverse base is only an asset yeah no agreed I I, I take that I take those comments very personally as well whenever um, people reference uh, pipeline issue and to your point yes there are specific skills that um, as far as like learning, like knowing Spanish in, in this specific market and all those things. But I think for the a majority of the time, it's just like a, a lazy excuse. I always say, um, how can companies build uh, a rocket ship to space, but they can't find enough people to hire? Um, they can't find they can't find enough like BIPOC employees to, to hire. So it, yeah, I agree. I'll, I'll finish off with this last question. But um, what's one thing that continues to empower and inspire you to 
continue to be your most authentic self. Change, right? Like change. I, you know, I grew up in, like I told you, a very Hispanic um, community and um, I wanted to see the world. And, you know, my, my beginning was about how, what are all the things, what are all the odds that are against me? And how do I overcome those obstacles? And so what inspires me is helping others overcome those obstacles. Um, you know, I've been, I, I've been asked to be a mentee, you know, mentor to many mentees. Um, whenever I have the time, I take it on. Um, you know, anybody who's ever worked for me would probably tell you I'm, you know, one of the toughest managers they've ever had, um, but have never felt more empowered, protected, supported, um, because I, I want them to be their authentic self. I don't, you know, I, I just had a call yesterday from somebody who worked for me who was, you know, on a conference call and they said, you know, I got to call, I have to get this off my chest about, you know, one of those experiences where everybody in the room, um, had an idea and um it wasn't a great idea until it, you know it wasn't the you know the the person of color in the room's idea and um you know they they felt the need to to get that off their chest and my being able to listen to that and to help them reconcile with you know what happens next for them to stay motivated um that that feeds me right that motivates me um if i have children you know i have twin boys and, and I hope that they don't um, have to, you know, be one of two Latinos in their workplace. And that motivates me. Mi gente, that wraps up this week's episode. If you've enjoyed what you have listened to, please do us a favor, leave us a rating and a review. It means the world to us and it just helps ensure that these stories and experiences are heard by more people so that we can ultimately reach our goal of redefining professionalism. Tune in next week for another episode with another very special guest.